Ryan, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love a chance after the service um, to introduce myself and just know a little bit more about, about you. Right now, as we enter the summer, we're going to be looking at the Psalms, and we're starting right at the beginning, the gateway, Psalm number one. Just a little bit of uh, where we're headed. We'll, we'll do this through the summer. August, as you might know, if you've been here, we're doing something a little different for August. We're having you send in your topics or requests, and um, so I think this next week is the last week. If you've got that burning issue, you know, you just are dying to hear what Scripture has to say about this, send, it, send that into the email uh, address that's in the back of the bulletin there, info at wallacepca.org, and we'll collect those and um, do our best to sort of consolidate the- thematically what you all are interested in and see how this goes. So look forward to it. But um, that's going to be in August. And then for the fall, if you're interested in reading ahead, we're going to study the book of Ephesians together as a church. So that's a little bit of where we're headed. But right now, we're in the Psalms for the summer. And if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of Psalms. Real easy to find. Usually just kind of cut down the middle, maybe a little bit to the left, and you'll find the Psalms, and we'll be in the first one. Before I read this, as you find uh, the Psalms, one, one scholar, I don't know if, you, if you've ever studied the Psalms, one scholar notes that, that the Psalms are a window into the bright lights and dark corners of the soul. Another notes that every situation in life, um, all emotions, experiences, uh, you can find those in the book of, of the Psalms. And one uh, reason for this is because the Psalms are, are not historical narrative, nor are they an eyewitness account that you might, might find in the Gospels. They're poetry. They're poetry. And so they give voice uh, to expression and to life's experiences and emotions, from joys and sorrows to anger, loneliness, fear, anxiety, and peace. The Psalms show us everything that we might call the human experience as we trust a sovereign God and the promises that he makes to us. And that's actually the key point here. As we read the Psalms, we got to understand the context, and the context is covenant. So the only way that we're actually able to be honest and, and make these Psalms our own, both as we read them and as we sing them, which is the point of singing something, make it your own, is that we know that we belong somewhere, and not just somewhere, but to someone. So it's like a marriage, right? Only in that environment can I actually be safe to be honest about life's experiences, both the joys and the sorrows. And so the Psalms offer that because of the context in which the Psalms are written. They know who they belong to. And because of that, I can be honest and share in all of life's range of emotions, crying out in joys and sorrows to a God who hears us. But if we don't know where we belong, and certainly for this Psalm as the gateway, if we don't know where we stand... Um, then we won't make the Psalms our own. We won't have the context, as it were, to feel safe and be vulnerable enough, to be honest enough with God, to trust Him enough in order to make these our own. So as we read these, and as we read this one this morning, I want us to remember, and this will be part of what we talk about this morning, that we read these as God's people. We read these as those who have been purchased by The blood of Jesus Christ, we are united to him, we belong to him. That's the context. And so with that, we can receive the wisdom, as we'll see in this first psalm, or anything else as we come across, uh, that we come across in these psalms and make them our own as the window into the bright lights and dark corners of the soul. 
All right, let's look at this. Psalm 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. The wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word, and we pray and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you'd be gracious and kind to us in that way, and that our hearts would receive your word as, as good soil receives a seed and that it may grow and produce a fruit that we too would leave here changed people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said in the intro, the Psalm 1 functions as uh, the gateway to the Psalter. So it has something to tell us about entering the Psalms themselves that we will pay attention to this morning. Um, but as it stands by itself, Psalm 1 is traditionally recognized as a wisdom psalm. And if you've spent any time in the book of Psalms, there's, there's all kinds of different types of psalms. There's psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, psalms of praise, there's kingship psalms, and the list goes on. But this one is a wisdom psalm, and so we're going to treat it as such. So what is wisdom then? Well, I like the definition that Dr. Jack Collins uses saying wisdom is the skill and the art of godly, godly living. Wisdom is the skill and art of godly living living. And as a wisdom psalm, it presses home the importance then that what we think about, right, what we meditate on, this also shapes us. And to quote Derek Kigner on Psalm 1 is the message that whatever shapes a person's thinking shapes his life as well. This is what Psalm 1's about. And because this is true, we must pay close attention to not only what we think about, but who or what we are to root in or connect in that would influence our thinking in such a way as to shape it and thus shape our lives. What wisdom might this psalm have then for us this morning is the question I'm after. And why is it the gateway to this altar? So let's look at two things with our time. There's the warning in the passage and then there's the wisdom in the passage. Those two things. If you're taking notes, the warning and the wisdom. So let's take that first one, the warning. In verses 1 to 2, we are introduced to a man who is said to be blessed, which is another word for happy. And the reason that he is happy and blessed is because he is shaped by the law of the Lord. Verse 2 says that it's the meditation of God's law day and night that is the reason that he is blessed or happy. But the warning in the passage, though, comes, as you notice in verse 1, it's a little interesting. As we read this, we, we read this statement of blessed is the man that is not something. So it begins in the negative as opposed to the positive. And here's what 
it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stand, nor stands in the ways of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Uh, a lot of times in wisdom literature, you're introduced to characters. If you read the Proverbs, you'll, you'll notice that. Characters such as wisdom, characters such as folly, the wicked, sinners. And these characters are those who have departed from God or want nothing to do with him which is the source of all life. And by degree, it is the scoffer who is considered the furthest from repentance, generally speaking. And so as we read this, we are brought into what the writer is showing us, which is this progression of realms of thinking that is influenced by those you listen to or spend time with. Look at the progression there. First, what? You might find yourself walking in the company of whose counsel, right, is far from God. Next, you find yourself standing in that counsel, which is really, at this point, it's kind of gotten your attention. You're looking at them, perhaps, and you're taking in what they have to say. But finally, you sit. And to sit in this day and age, right, would be to give your allegiance to something. This is where I belong. This is where I'm planting my flag. This is what I'm taking in that'll shape my thinking, that ultimately shape my life. And this is the warning. To illustrate this, let's talk about fandom for a second. You know, um, what I mean by fandom, right? Just simply being a fan of something uh, to the extent that you adopt its culture and its values, right? Because the, the point of the psalm, as I'll say again, is that it, it's, not an, it's not a maybe I'm being shaped by something. It's you're going to be shaped by something, right? What is it? And what do I mean by shaping? And so fandom, that's always a safe one to talk about, right? So let's, let's talk about sports, for example, which is our, our, always our favorite topic. Right? When we become a fan of a particular team, and whatever you're a fan of, right? Fandom expands beyond sports, but you obviously know where, where my idolatries lie. Right? When we adopt a particular team, right, we, we take on those colors, as it were. We take on the, the values, right, the cheers, that's where we belong. Go to most college campuses in the fall, and you're going to see a lot of what? Allegiance. <laughs> a lot of adopting the values, the colors, the cheers of what is going on in and around that place. This is what we mean by allegiance, by belonging, by taking things out. We get shaped by these things. I wear the color orange because I'm shaped as a volunteer. And to the extent that that leads me away from Christ, I expect elders to come in and tell me to repent of my idolatry. We can talk about what that is for you at another time. Psalm 1 is warning us, though, about not just who we give our allegiance to in this case, because that's who ultimately we listen to, but that we will. We will. It is the assumption in the text. We will give it to someone, and we will be shaped by something. There is no neutral ground. This is why this is... One of the reasons why this is the gateway. There's no neutral, there's no third way here. You are either shaped by the living streams that are the word of God, as we see in verse 2 and in verse 3, which is to be shaped by God himself, or you are shaped by something else. And what the psalmist is saying is that you actually want to give your allegiance to something. That's, that's what college football tells us. It's not that it's super interesting, although it is. It's like we're people dying to give our allegiance to something and find our identity in something. To an extent, it's a good thing that you want to do this. This is how you were created. The question is, do you know this about yourself? 
the pride and the arrogance in our own lives would say is, no, 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 I'm, in, I'm very much in control of what's going on up here and what's shaping me. I don't need to pay attention to that. Rather, it's beginning to understand who we are. And, and as Christians, what that also means is that we take into account the fall, which means that I no longer trust God. And what I do is I trust myself. I look to myself for, for these things. And the psalmist is calling us back from this, saying, you are looking for belonging, you're looking for identity somewhere, and those are the places that you will sit down, as it were, and feed. And what it is that you think about, how that shapes your thinking, shapes your life. What is it? What is it? As Derek Kigner again notes, Counsel, weigh, and seat. Draw attention to the realms of thinking, behaving, and belonging in which a person's fundamental choice of allegiance is made and carried through. So are you aware of how God created you and how we are creations that are made to be shaped by something? For some, it might be fandom, it might be sports, but I think there are two that emerge as stronger candidates for all of us in this room, and that's relationships or friendships, and it's our technology. We want to look at what is shaping us the most in our culture today. It is your friendships, and it is technology. As I quoted in our David series when talking about Jonathan and David, right, I said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I'm sure I smirked at something along the lines of, if you don't like, you, know, you either deal with that or you find better friends. <laughs> but that's, that's what people, that, that is, that's true. Because who you spend your time with, right, your friends especially, they are shaping you. They influence you more than any other relationship outside of your parents. Some studies show that they influence you more than your spouse if you're married. Who you spend time with matters. Now, let me be clear. Psalm 1 is not saying remove yourself from anyone who isn't a Christian or isn't godly. Not saying that at all. But the instruction is relationships matter. Who you spend time with matters. But second, technology. We all are aware of how this is shaping our culture. Are we aware of how it's shaping us? According to leading sociologists and psychologists, our technology, smartphones in particular, right, are the greatest voice that is shaping who we are today. To the point that books are now being written on how to fast from your technology, and it's actually now a disorder. So the medical books, it's in there. It's called IAD, Internet Addiction Disorder. Look it up. No surprise, though, because we were created, what? To be shaped by something. It's just evidence of our design. We are gravitating towards something to shape us, to give our allegiance to, to tell us who we are, to give us identity. Pastor Mark Sayers says this in his book, Non-Anxious Presence. He writes, the digital network is now our primary formational environment. It shapes our opinions, values, and worldview. Today, the average churchgoer will Google a problem before they approach their pastor. 
The digital network is the primary shaper of their theological, political, and cultural worldview. If you think Ada doesn't Google a theological question before she asks me, you're kidding yourself. But, I, you know, I don't read this to, to, for us to freak out on technology, right? A hundred years ago, we were saying this about the newspaper, and perhaps 550 years ago about the printing press itself. But to ignore the power of how our technology is shaping us is naive at best, and it's no strategy for godly living at worst. And so what should we do? Should we get rid of our friends that aren't Christians, right? Should we get rid of our, 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 unga- our yeah, ungodly influences? Should we get rid of our smartphones, right? And in some situations, right, that might be the case. But I want to draw us back to the psalm. It's a what? Psalm of wisdom. Right? The Bible is not asking us to remove ourselves from culture and society. It's asking us to use our brains in the midst of it. We need wisdom in these areas. We need skill and the art of godly living when it comes to friendships and who we spend our time with. We need skill and the art of godly living when it comes to our technology. And the primary way that this has always been done throughout the ages is from generation to generation. Or what some of us might refer to as discipleship. And while that might be possible with friendships, we might all automatically recognize that, that what does the older generation have to teach the younger generation about technology? We can't even turn on the TV anymore. But I digress. It's discipleship, right? It's membership vows that we take uh, to support and to raise up children. I know Ada and I will have the greatest impact on our kids' thinking today. But the Bible is saying, and I, and I would suggest the psalm assumes, that a time is coming when someone else will take that seat. I can't protect them from everything, though I wish I could. Therefore, controlling, right, my children and who they hang out with, what, what my instinct is to do, is no strategy for godly living for their lives. Instead, what the psalm invites me to is uh, the process of learning how to discern and walk with them about how to discern good friendships and how to ask good questions regarding the company that we keep because of how powerful it is. I have something to pass on, as it were, as something about myself, which like, this is where the, the, the parts of me that are perhaps not the prettiest can be the most helpful to my kids. Your, your dad gets shaped by things every day. It's a powerful force. But, but don't fear this. The Lord is stronger. The Lord is good. Let's talk about these things, right? Dr. John Cox in his book, Setting Parents Free, which I would recommend to all of us, calls this healthy deparenting, to stick with this illustration. Healthy deparenting, which he argues begins around ages 12 to 13, although oftentimes earlier, has as its goal to have your children making good decisions for themselves before they leave home, as opposed to protecting them and making all the decisions for them until they leave home. He says this, if as a parent I have never let my child learn to make decisions for themselves, fail, and experience the consequences under my roof where I can walk with them through it, i.e. discipleship, and still have influence in their lives, then what am I setting them up for when they leave? That's sobering to me. 
And I would suggest the same is true with things like our technology. It's not in the rules we ultimately give ourselves. It's in the sharing of wisdom from one generation to another that has the most impact. I, I joke with my kids when it comes to our phones as they see mommy and daddy. I look at them and I say, look, save yourselves. Mommy and daddy, we're gone. Right? We, it's already got us. But you, you don't have to turn out, turn out like this. Save yourselves. But in all seriousness, I tell them that. I tell them about the addictive nature of this altogether, that devices and other things that that, that, that brings into your life. That what, here's what it does to you. And I wish that somebody had passed that down to me. Maybe they didn't own a smartphone, but they understand right, the addictive nature of things. See, this is how we learn and how we grow. Sharing that wisdom. I can set all the rules I want to you for my technology. I'll break them. But bring one or two friends into my life to hold me accountable to it, to challenge me in other pursuits and share why that's important. Now, that's powerful. And, you know, I'll sit there because I'm somebody longing to find a place to drop my allegiance, to follow, to say, help me. And this is how discipleship works. This is how wisdom works from generation to generation. For now, the question as we lead this warning is, where are you, where are you sitting? Where are you sitting? What is your primary source of influence? What is shaping your thinking the most? Because that's what's ultimately shaping your life. And as we're about to get to, if it's not connected to those streams of living water, then the outcome Verses 5 and 6 tell us the outcome of where we're going. That's how powerful this is, how strong of a warning this is. Much more can be said here, I'm sure, but this is the warning in the passage. passage. So, so what can we do and, and what should we do if this is true about us? And this gets to the wisdom in the passage. The wisdom of the passage comes to us in verses 2 to 3, and it literally says, essentially, don't be like this, but be like this, which was... Rule number one in homiletics of what not to do to your congregants. <laughs> the killer bees, as Dr. Chapel used to call them. But that's what the psalm says. Don't be like this, be like this. Don't be chaff that is rootless and blows away in the wind. Rather, what? Be a tree whose roots grow deep into the streams of water that give life. What an image, right? If you've been on the water, you've seen that tree perhaps maybe several yards off the shore, but its roots are coming through, um, you know, the sides of the, of, of the, whatever, the bank, and they're coming right into the water, and you just know, like a straw, a tree is set for life. That's the picture here. And as we read verse 3, we get all these wonderful pictures here of the things that, the benefits that happen to this tree. It's nourished 24-7 by those streams we read. It doesn't wither, which means in times of drought or storm, it, it, it stays alive. We read that it produces fruit or does what it's created to do, 
which, has, which is another sermon for another time, right? That has huge implications for, for us. We want to know what God wants us to do. Well, he's going to, pro- he's going to produce that in us as we're connected to him. But that's, that's the picture here. And of course, as, as, as we said before, right, the, the, the tree produces fruit not for its own self, but for the benefit of others. Interesting enough, sidebar, now you're the place because of the fruit that's being born in your life, like patience and love and self-control. You're the place where people are coming to find friendship because they're attracted to what you're producing, or should I say what the Holy Spirit's producing in your life. What else? In all that he does, he prospers. And prospers here is tied not to individual pursuit or dreams, but to promises God has made that reflect his faithfulness to the person. The overarching promise here where prosperity or success success is found would be salvation. I.e. being numbered among the congregation of the righteous. Well, how do we make sure what is shaping our thinking leads to this blessing? And the answer is connect yourself to God's word. Meditate on it day and night. Grow roots into that which has the power to give life. And what is that? Well, that's God's law. As the psalmist said earlier, it is the law of the Lord there from verse 2 that is meditated on day and night that brings blessedness or happiness. This is what is intended to shape us. This is what is intended uh, to, to occupy our thinking so that such as our minds are shaped, so our lives are shaped as well. This was the intention of the law here. This brings so much blessedness and happiness. But you might be asking the same question. How do we stay connected to these streams, right? This is a real interesting picture. I'm, I'm dialed in. I'm kind of I'm intrigued. What do I do here? In the Old Testament... It's easy. You were born into this, right? Your ethnicity meant you were already connected to the streams. Now, there was participation, right? You participated in following the law. You observed food laws. You observed uh, the sacrificial system, et cetera, et cetera. But this is how you participated. But namely, those streams were, you were connected to those streams by virtue of being born a Jew. In the Old Testament, the law of God is the source of life because it is God himself. Th- those aren't two things. And so to keep it, to keep it here, right, is, is to keep God here. That was the picture of it. However, in the Old Testament, right, we also see a tragedy, that the law is abandoned. Certainly not by all, but abandoned by by its leaders. And for those that would keep it, I don't know if their experience is the same as ours, but it found it very difficult to keep. But to abandon the law, right, is is, is to say to God himself, right, I I don't want to have anything to do with you. And and this is where the, 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 the bigger themes of the Old Testament start to make sense to us as we read the prophets. And I'll share with you Jeremiah, who spoke about this in chapter 2, 13. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, what, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water at all. 
In other words, Jeremiah is saying that God's people have abandoned him for other sources of life, of living water. They have grown roots in other places but God himself. And the living water that they have gone after, whether in success, power, money, whatever, it holds and it gives life like water in a broken cistern, which means it doesn't. Which means it not only fulfills or satisfies, it actually has no ability to feed or give you life apart from God himself. You might say Jeremiah's plea was, come back to Psalm 1. Why are you abandoning the life source here? But what happens to a people who either abandon the law or can't keep it? They need a Savior. And this is something the law pointed to all along, didn't it? So that as we get to the New Testament, something has changed, right? Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Word made flesh, as John says, is both this tree, but also this living water that gives life to our souls. I typically will be pretty generous with the pronouns in the Old Testament if they are both, you know, if they're neuter or if if they're meant to have a he or she. It is very clear and, and intentional in Psalm 1 that the he there is singular. It is masculine, singular, talking about a specific person. And that's where we turn. As we see Jesus come to us in the New Testament, John 1 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And then in John 4, when Jesus is sitting at a well with a woman who asked for water, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink of water, you would have asked him, And he would have given you what? Living water. What's going on here? What's happening? As the Son of God, Jesus is saying that he is the true tree that obeys the law. And because of that, he is the one who is found righteous. At the same time, at the same time, he is the true living water that gives us eternal life. For what? For all who are connected to him. And how are we connected to him? Same way Jews were in the Old Testament, same way we are today. By faith. By faith. By our union with him, by the Holy Spirit. By faith in Christ, we become united to him and all the benefits are given to us, i.e. we prosper. Paul says this in Romans 6, 5, 4, if we have been united with him and a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him and a resurrection like his. By faith, the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus, which connects us to the source of living water for our souls. It connects us to him. And in so doing, Jesus' record becomes what? Our record. This is why it's important that he is the law. He's the word of God. We stand on his righteousness. This is how you stand then in the congregation. When judgment comes out, you're not standing on your own merit. You're standing on the one who was able to stand in the judgment because he was righteous. This is the gospel. The righteous one for the unrighteous many. And faith is what then connects you to that stream that is Christ. It's both and. He is the faithful one. And by virtue of that, by our union with him, we are connected to the one true life source there is. But 
there's one more thing here. It's not just that, that, that he is our righteousness. He also takes our judgment here. And this is important because, because why? Because you notice there, I think it's in verse 2, his what? Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not something that he's obligated to do. It's not something that, that even us as Christians, as we enter into the psalm ourselves, to try to stay connected to these, these streams, right? We just got to muscle up and grin and bear it. There's delight. And why is there delight? Because you know what he's done for you. He's taken that judgment on your behalf. He hasn't just given you his righteousness, which we all love. Right? That's the gospel. He's taken your punishment, which means what? He loves you. He wants to be with you. And when you know that's true, when you belong because of what somebody did for you in that regard, you'll adore him. You'll delight in him. Might I say you'll open your ears to receive the wisdom that he has for you because everything that he has for you is for your benefit. And as a wisdom psalm, what is what does that have to say for us this morning? Where are we or how are we uh, maintaining our roots in these living streams? And first, let me say this. We're, we're not maintaining much, right? It's Jesus who connects himself to us. Let's remember that. You are not holding on to God, right? God is holding on to you. He is connected to you. What that means then is you and I, we participate in this union, which is awesome. Right? This, is, this is your work, people, okay? This is where we uh, garner wisdom to stay connected, as it were, to those streams, to continue to feed. And what is that? It's what we love to call, uh, as, as Presbyterians, the ordinary means of grace. Are you excited about that? You're about to get excited about it. I, because this, I'm, I'm 42, and when I first heard this, right, I yawned and I wanted nothing to do with it. I interviewed a man who was 85 at my last church and said, what do you think about worship? Like, what, 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 what makes you want to worship? He's like, I, I can't think about life without it. Without coming here to be in front of the, of the preached word, without coming to take part in the Lord's Supper, without being with God's people. I'm somewhere in the middle there, but I'm starting to get the hang of it. I need this because it feeds me. This is my participation in what is already true. The means of grace are the preached word, the sacrament, and prayer. And if I could briefly, just for application's sake, wisdom-related sake, right? That's the point of the psalm. Find a church that preaches faithfully the word of God and get in front of it. Whether you stay at Wallace or not, whether you're a student that, that, that goes on uh, to Washington, right, to Seattle, wherever, and, and works a job, find a church that preaches the word faithfully and get in front of it. Why? Because you realize you need it for your growth. Do you need it? It's tradition in reform camps. I love that. Do you need it? Or is it just something that you check the box to make sure it's happening on Sunday? I need it. I need it. This is the first means of grace that, that, that we're brought, brought into. But second, along with the preached word, are the sacraments, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Do we run to these things? Would be an application. 
of, of, of participating in these wonderful streams that we're connected to by virtue of being united to Christ by faith. And you say, Ryan, well, what about baptism? That's a one-time thing. I, 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 it is. It's true. Um, in the uh, olden days, right, the baptismal fountain was at the entrance of the church. Why? So that in your coming and your going, you were reminded over and over of your baptism. And why is that important? You're reminded of God's faithful promise to you. So just as much as you're taking part of the sacrament on a weekly basis of the table, right, you're also being reminded of what's already true of you, your belonging. That's feeding you. That's you participating in these wonderful streams. Thirdly, prayer. As a means of grace, prayer is about participating in the relationship that you have in Christ. It is about communing with God and getting outside of ourselves to grow in Him. Steve Lawson put it this way, prayer does not change the will of God. Prayer submits to the will of God. And there is a huge difference. Prayer then says, I not only want to submit my will to yours, it says, I want what is already true in my union with Christ to be true in my physical, emotional, psychological, social, whatever, life until death, until I, until I go to be with him. Do you see what you have access to, right? Do you, do you take advantage of prayer because that's what it does for us. It, it says, I want what's already true because of what Christ has done to us to be true in all my thinking, doing, behaving, everything. I want to know him. Lastly, and this is a, a, an added fourth means of grace, which is questionable. It's not in the Westminster Confession. Um, but it, God's community, none of this, none of this was ever meant, it's the assumption around the other three, is meant to be done individually. You are meant to do this in community, right? You are meant to do this with and as God's people. You want to grow roots and you want to participate in God's union with you. You do that by finding yourself immersed in the community of God's people. I tell, or I told our middle school and high schoolers this year, uh, and I'll say the same for you all this morning. You might have very little in common with one another this morning, right? Different schools, different jobs, different neighborhoods, different challenges as a parent, different nationalities and life experiences. We could go on. But at the very least, what you do have in common is belonging to Christ, And you do that in this local expression called Wallace Presbyterian Church of all places. And having that far outweighs in value and importance for your soul anything else that you could have in common with another person. And why? And we're about to participate in this. Because your union with Christ doesn't just mean you're connected to Jesus. It also means you are connected to each other. That is how God has intended for you to grow, believe it or not, in all of its joys and in all of its sorrows. You are connected to each other. We share the same death in Christ and the same resurrection. There might be people outside these walls that you get along with more, right, who are not believers. And I, I know that's true, personally. Right? This is not an invitation to, to circle the wagons and just, just rid ourselves of, of those who are not godly, as if we all are. 
right? That is not the point, right? There might be people out there you associate with. I hope so, right? But there aren't people outside these walls that can feed you as God's people with their friendship, care, and perhaps most important this morning, with their wisdom. With their wisdom. After all, you will spend eternity with these people, and that alone has massive implications for how they can shape you today. To remove yourself from that means of grace is, should I say, a way of removing yourself, that that can happen, right, from the streams of living water, which Christ has paid for, united himself to you for. Take advantage of these things. They're for you. If Christ is our true living water, we must go to the places where he has said, this is where I am. And the ordinary means of grace are those places. They are the gifts of God for what? The people of God. This is how we participate. This is how we maintain a constant diet on the gospel, which shapes our thinking that what ultimately shapes our life. I think I understand why this might be the gateway to the Psalter. And some of that is because I recognize how I'm found righteous in that congregation. It's the righteousness of another which means I belong. And if that's true, I can open myself up, right, to the vulnerability and honesty that the Psalms have to offer as somebody who experienced the various joys and sorrows of life, that I may cry out to my God and know that he has not abandoned me, know that he is there, right, that I can share in other people's sorrows appropriately because that's what God's people do, that by being connected to Christ as we feed and participate in on him, we, we grow as one. And this is the context for the Psalms. This is where we are going. We can then have full confidence to know that because we stand in the judgment, where we stand in that judgment, that we can be honest before God and what he has for us. Would we more and more give our allegiance to the one, though, who has given us everything? And that's an invitation to this table that I now invite us all to to participate in as his people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you for its richness and all that is there, um, it's, it's so simple, yet its depths um, we can't get to. Um, and so we pray that as we both think about its wisdom and think about where it's, it's directing us and think about the things that shape us, um, may we also learn of how we are found righteous as we enter the Psalms this summer, having confidence to know that we belong to you and that as we participate in all the ways you've given us to continue to feed on you, would we draw closer to you in relationship and by that would we allow the Psalms to be a window into our soul, be a window into the bright lights and the dark corners of all that happens and goes on in our lives, knowing that none of that, like a faithful spouse, causes you to run. Rather, you're here redeeming us 
by the blood of your son over and over and over again. We pray that you go with us now as we come to your table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.